So we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's, of course, teaching us how to live under his rule in his kingdom, you know, which essentially sort of explains what it means to be a good person, live a good life. And we just completed chapter 5, where Jesus shows us really a sort of superior morality, if you will, a deeper kind of righteousness. Uh, If you'll remember how he starts this section, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, these were the most religious people of the day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a remarkable statement, stunning. It would have blown the minds of anyone there who heard it. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were obviously a part of the kingdom. At least in the minds of people. Uh, In other words, Jesus is saying, unless you understand what it means to be a good person, that's what righteousness is, to be a good person, uh, and you understand that it's not just about keeping rules like like the uh, scribes and Pharisees did, but rather it's dictated uh, by an internal heart change and a relationship that doesn't have boundaries, your rules They all have limits and boundaries, as we've seen. God says, no, no, no. If your heart is mine, then there are no boundaries to the way you treat people and the way you live your your life. And this is important to say. Uh, As we saw at the end of chapter 5, our love is limitless, the way we love people. It's limitless. It's not lawless. It doesn't mean that the law does not matter. It's just, it just means you go, you go beyond the law to love people. In other words, the law doesn't stop you. You don't get that far and stop. It just takes you farther. And that can be summed up in the way Matthew ends chapter 5. You're going to be like your father. Whatever your father is, you will be. Whatever your father is, you can be because of your relationship to him. Remember, the relationship is the key. Uh, It transforms, and that relationship dictates everything about our life and makes it possible. So as we enter chapter 6, Jesus continues to describe uh, the life that a person in the kingdom lives and his now sort of his devotional life as well. In the kingdom, and it distinguishes it from the religious uh, way of doing devotion. So, if you want God to have his way in your life and his kingdom to dictate your life and uh, to have essentially eternal life, that's what eternal life is, then you will have to manage, chapter six is going to tell us, two obsessions. The first one, is the obsession to look good. And then the second is the obsession to get more. Those are two things that will sort of knock you out of alignment in the kingdom. 
your desire to look good and your desire to get more. Uh, so the first half of chapter 6 deals with your status, your image. Verses 6, or chapter 6, 1 to 18. Then the second we'll, look, we'll deal with uh, down the road here a little bit more is dealing with stuff. Uh, getting more. And uh, both of these are driven, by the way, by insecurity. So a religious approach to, approach to life is very self-oriented. It has sort of a built-in pressure to prove itself, um, to prove its own worthiness, where you're constantly concerned about whether or not you're good enough. With religion, you almost have to always be concerned because you're never quite sure if you kept enough laws. And so, uh, so you just never know if you're good enough on a given day. And if we can't be perfect, we can at least look perfect. And that's what religion drives. Because you can't be perfect as your Heavenly Father's perfect, then you panic. You try to keep rules, and you make sure that people at least think you're a good guy or a good gal. Uh, this essentially is image control. Religion is about image control. God is not relied on for my spiritual status. I do not look to God for spiritual status. I look to people. I'm not concerned about what he thinks about me. I'm concerned about what everybody else thinks about me. So I don't rely on God for my image. And that keeps me earthly focused. And again, then I eventually I'm not relying on him for my needs either. And so I'm completely disoriented in, in the kingdom because I have to secure myself. I have to secure my status and my security. Uh, so with religion, you're in control completely. God has nothing. God's out. You're in control. So in the kingdom, though, you have a father. That was the point of the end of chapter 5, is you have a father. And you're supposed to rely on him for both of those, your status and your security. Uh, so we seek our approval from him, and we seek getting our needs met from him. So Jesus will address the issue of status in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, which we'll spend some time ex uh, examining. And uh, essentially as it relates to our approach to three simple acts of devotion, giving, praying, and fasting. So these are three very, very basic uh, things you would find religious people doing in almost any religion. Uh, and, they're, and they're important to the spiritual life. And so we're going to look at each one specifically in the coming weeks. Today I just want to give you an overview of this chapter before we get into it. So we get to chapter 6, verse 1, and uh, this is what we have. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, uh, there are three things I kind of want us to see as sort of an overview here. Uh, I want us to see the danger. Uh, Then we're going to look at the show. And then we're going to look at the no-show. So the first is the danger. And the danger comes because he says here, beware. Beware. And here's what he says to beware of. The practice of your righteousness. So people who are trying to be good people are going to do good things. Uh, And it may be kind of difficult to even register that there's danger in practicing righteousness. I mean, anybody doing righteousness, what's the danger in that? People trying to be good and and do good. Well, Jesus is saying here, there is a danger. Uh, It needs to be on our radar because it's potentially damning. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I think at, at its worst, Jesus is going to say this at the end of this sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enter, uh, will enter the kingdom. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, watch this, many will say, Lord, And they'll point out a lot of things that they did. They will say certain things, and they will do certain things. They will practice some kind of righteousness. Didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, basically work miracles in your name? And then God is going to say this to those people. I never knew you. Depart from me. And then he calls them workers of lawlessness. People who said the right thing and did the right thing were lawless. Now, it's impossible to imagine any kind of worse moment in the life of anyone who has tried to be a good person to hear this from God. And the fact that the possibility exists is why Jesus says, beware at chapter 6 and verse 1. It is a shocking, scary reality that somehow what I said and what I did were very surface. There was a veneer, but there was no relationship. I never knew you. We didn't know each other. And why would he say I was lawless if I tried to be good? Well, like I said at the beginning, religion is self-oriented. We do what we do for ourselves. That's what makes it lawless. We didn't do it for our father. We didn't know the father. What What makes me pursue the law in a lawless way is relationships out 
and it's all about me, my looks, and what I can get, and my security, and my life, my assessment. So it's basically goodness on my terms, my standards, and we're all addicted to our standards of what is good. So, well, how do you distinguish a person? <laughs> how do you distinguish a person who won't have this said to them? Like what they said and what they did was real. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what's before us. And talk about important. Because Jesus is going to show us at least one way throughout this passage of how to determine whether I'd have this said to me or not. And so uh, there is a danger in doing good things. If it's self-oriented, there's no relationship. Now, we'll understand what that means here in a second. But the second part of this is, is what I want to call the show. This is... Uh, so the first part is the danger. Second part is you do them in order to be seen. This is really the key to understanding. This is the reason why you do good things. And this is, by the way, the word for theater. He could have used other words for seeing. But the reason he uses theater is because somehow my righteous acts have become a, like, a, like a play and I need people to see me. And not just notice me, but I mean, really see me. And so that's the idea of theater. In other words, your religion is just a stage show. Um, this is what good is without God. It's a show. It's not real, it's an act. It will feel very real to whoever's doing it. It'll look very real to whoever's watching it. But it isn't. It seeks human applause, notoriety, uh, popularity. It intends to impress. Its focus is external and visible, but behind the scenes, Behind the scenes or backstage, there's nothing there. Uh, it's not genuine, and it's not from the heart. And that's why he will use the word a number of times here, uh, is the word hypocrites, which originally was a word used for actors. And so he basically calls them actors on a stage. And then by the time Jesus takes the word hypocrite, actor would come to mind but now it's used with a sort of a, in a deceitful way, in a real-life moral setting where my life is just not what it appears to be, kind of like an actor. Um, you're one way here and you're one way there, or what you see is not what you get. Um, and this is very self-deceiving because the reason you saw so much shock in the people at the end. We're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? It's because it's very easy to come to believe 
uh, to lie to yourself, and you don't even know which character you are. You're so self-deceived that you become your stage character. That's who you think you are. And so you start to believe your, your own lies. Um, I won't give it away if you haven't seen it, but there's a, a Netflix show called the, the Tinder Swindler. This guy on Tinder is uh, swindling people out of money. He's dating these girls. He gives them the, the sense that he is this very, very wealthy um, sort of prince of sorts. And uh, he deceives all of them really badly. I mean, there's just nothing worse in the world than to have somebody in your life that you realize is not what you thought they were. And to watch the show, it's almost hard to watch. I found myself a couple of moments wanting to turn it off because I just couldn't handle the angst of what he was doing and the fake. You just wanted him exposed so bad because none of us can handle this. I mean, none of us, we all are shocked when we hear a marriage disintegrate. But they always seemed fine in front of us. But behind the scenes, they were toxic. Devastating to one another. But in front of everybody, they were fine. And when we have that happen to us, when we discover that, we're like beside ourselves over it. And that's what happens to this guy. He's whining and dining. He's spending all kinds of money swindling out of all these ladies. And then at one moment when he starts to get, when they start to get smart about it and his resources shut off, there's a moment where he's sending pictures to the last gal of being almost homeless, looking pretty homeless and not in the five-star hotel, but in the, some, like what it looks like it appears to be a shelter. And the lady is finally saying, ah, finally exposed for what he really has and what he really is. It's an incredible moment, and you're like, ah, yes. Um, he is not what he appears to be. Um, if you've ever, it's probably worth noting, by the way, it is very, very difficult. Um, and we'll probably address this throughout the, the talk throughout chapter 6, it is hard to face disapproval. You know, as exciting as it is to get approval, and one of the ways to know how much you love approval is when you don't get it and you get just the opposite. It's really hard. Then you start to get a feel for how much you, you depended on it and how much you needed it, and that, it's sort of a, just a human need. So let's just be aware and be sensitive to this reality. Don't act like, oh, that's not me. Oh, no, no, it's deeply us. Um, we've all been disapproved of in our lives. I'll tell you a little funny story about probably the most remarkable moment of disapproval in my life. Uh, right out of college, I was working on the series Miami Vice, and... Uh, I was driving vehicles, you know, and one Saturday morning they were going to do a, uh, a half, the, the, the cast of Miami Vice, 
was going to do a halftime show for something called the annual Pig Bowl, which was a bunch of police officers who are in uniform that they've been playing all year. This was their Super Bowl of games. And so all of South Florida was going to this thing, but part of what drove it was everybody knew at halftime the cast was going to be there, and they were going to actually do a scene, a movie scene on the field. And so uh, my boss asked me to drive the Ferrari to the game so that they could use it in the halftime scene. And so, uh, you know, I got the top on it, and I'm driving this thing to uh, the game. And I'm getting honks because at this time, this is the height of everybody knows that car in Miami. My Miami shut down on Friday nights <laughs> to watch this show. And so uh, everybody knows the car, so everybody's beeping, but you can't really see me inside it. You know, who do you think's driving it? So, I mean, I'm just driving, I get there. I get there right at the uh, end of the first quarter. So I pull into this stadium, and this is literally what happened. I mean to tell you, everybody in those stands emptied. They just ran down to the field because they thought, Don Johnson had just pulled up in that car. <laughs> I drove that thing around to the stadium to the back side of the, you know, of the, you know, uh, end zone. And I parked this car, and I mean, I, I get out of it, and I mean, floods of people are sprinting toward this vehicle. I mean, mayhem, pure mayhem. When I got out of the car... You would have thought <laughs> that I was the worst human being that's ever existed in the whole world. At that moment, Mr. Nobody got out of that car, and you could see the disapproval. You could feel it. Everybody just sort of stopped, bumping into each other. You get the face. You're like, and, and then, oh, you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm sorry. I just brought the car. Now, there's a whole lot more to that story. I won't tell it to you today. Uh, but yeah, when everybody looks at you and you feel that feeling, it doesn't matter what it's for. And so the text gives us, what the text is going to do for us is give us a description of, um, of the life the life of the spiritual actor so that we get a feel for what he's like, whose lives are sort of governed by the rules of theater. If you're in religion and so you're in the theater and then, you know, your life, you know, will be determined by certain theater rules. Um, and he's going to do this. He's going to give us a picture of this life by examining three acts of devotion, as I said. Uh, and by nature, these acts of devotion are private. And so it kind of gives you a little bit of a window into even the things that should be private, we try to make public. In other words, we, we try to drag these things onto the stage because we need them to bolster our self-image and status. So even things that shouldn't be seen We'll drag them out and make sure people see them. 
That's kind of one of the ways you know. And who needs to know what I just did? Who should know what I just did? Now, uh, so he's going to give us three of these things. Look, and this is how he's going to describe them. We'll look at them closely later. But you've got giving, praying, and fasting. And in the giving, he's sounding trumpets. I mean, he's hired a, mar- he's hired a band to, you know, make commotion and draw attention to himself. Praying, he screams on the street corners. He wants everybody to know that he's praying and what he's saying. And then in the fasting, he disfigures his face so that people know that he's suffering sort of for God. It makes it appear more righteous. These are, these are written here because they're tricks of the trade. If you're religious and you're in the theater, these are tricks of the trade that attract attention. You learn how to attract attention. To be seen as spiritual and to be seen as more spiritual than you really are. Uh, Talbert, one commentator, uh, uh, in a little book called uh, Reading the Sermon on the Mount, interesting. He talks about these three statements here being satirical and sort of their hyperbole and their extremes. Um, they didn't all actually happen in reality. Uh, to some degree, possibly, but the point is, this is what he writes, they are hyperbole, caricatures, revealing a tendency in the human heart, increasing the chance that we will recognize the danger to which we are normally blind. Most of us are far more subtle than this. And so these are designed to go, yeah, I guess I do try to get attention sometimes. And it's interesting that the solution to that is revealed, like the solution to these sort of grandiose displays are really quite simple. When you give... Just use one hand. When you pray, go in a room and shut the door. When you're fasting, keep up your hygiene. That's it. And basically what he's saying here in all three of these is... You need to have a kind of a life that's hidden. You need to hide a little bit. This is sort of the secret life of the believer. They have a real personal relationship with God. It's meaningful enough that they don't need public approval. It's not a game to them. It's not a show. It's not an act. It's a secret life with God, out of the view of others, that helps to break our dependence on the opinions of others, while at the same time developing intimacy with God. 
So without this sort of, I mean, this is a, that's a real quality of soul. That you do those things and that you do them that way. That you have this sort of a, a deep inner life. You're a deep person. If we don't, then we are what everyone else says we are. Whoever they are and whatever that is, the smiles and the frowns of men dictate our lives. The approval and disapproval of people. So you end up sort of in a neurotic mess. All right, you're, you're, you're desperate, you're needy, fragile, insecure, exhausted, guilt-ridden, easily manipulated. And then you know what happens after chapter 6. You know what the first topic is after chapter 6? Judgmental in, verse, in chapter 7. You have to be judgmental because you're constantly looking around to see if anybody's better than you and how you can be better. And so you got to crush other people so that you feel better about yourself. That's what religion does. This is the, sort of the sick inner workings of showy religion. And here's the shocking part. The shocking part about this is God's not impressed with it at all. In fact, third point, you have the danger, you have the show, is I just, for lack of a better way, uh, just called it the no-show. You have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Wow. Wow. Not only is God not entertained or impressed, he doesn't even show up for your act. It reveals how out of touch we are with God. What he is, who he is, what pleases him, what matters to him, what he wants. Without that deep, private, secret, hidden inner life, that's all you got. In all three of these sections, in the praying, the giving, and the fasting, here's what he writes, and it's phenomenal. So your giving needs to be in secret. And your father who sees in secret. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And your father who is in secret. Now he's in secret. And he sees in secret. He doesn't just see in secret. He's in secret. That your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is again in secret and sees in secret. There are really two things to notice about that. 
And I've only begun, really. The first one is the, the hiddenness of God. I, I just got a book on, on the topic. Uh, in recent decades, the hiddenness of God has become a little bit more uh, of a topic in terms of uh, arguments for God's existence, but also uh, really grasping the idea of the impact of God's hiddenness. So I'm just doing some research on it. So hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll be able to uh, you know, expound on this a little bit more. But there's enough here. To, to notice. Scholars say it's very, very difficult to, to interpret what it means that God is in secret. We already saw, by the way, let's see, that he's in heaven. So he's in heaven in this text, uh, and he is in secret. Uh, God has a hidden side and a secret side. Uh, we'll have to explore a little bit more what it means to, for, that God's in heaven because it has implications for all of chapter 6 um, and for our lives. But there's, there's something about these ideas that God is in heaven and in secret, like far out and really, really in the time, you know, macro and micro. And there's something transcendent about him. He's way beyond us. And there's something very personal and intimate about him. These two realities. And this is what you and I are trying to interact with. And if you don't grasp that, then you're going to just be living some sort of religious, self-centered life in between. Somehow I've got to figure out how to relate to a God who's bigger and beyond me and I can't see him. And a God who's... Very personal and very intimate. You have a hidden life because God has a hidden life. And you're mimicking your father. He has a hidden life. It's part of his character. It means he's very, very personal and capable of intimacy. By the way, that's the call to the deep, private, inner, hidden life. Is that God really wants to relate to you in a unique, special, personal, and intimate way. That's what it says about it. And it says, he's not dependent on public approval either. I mean, God's approval rating in the world. What would you say that is? I mean, there's people mad at God who don't even believe he exists. And God doesn't seem to be overly, like how many times if you were God, would you have shown up? Oh, my Lord. He's not dependent. Scream and holler all you want. 
But what this text is saying about the hidden side of God is he's very attracted to deep inner matters of the heart, personal matters of the heart and soul. What drives you, what makes you tick, that part of you that is insecure, that does want to be loved deeply, that wants to connect, that knows that there's something really meaningful in the world. God wants to connect with us on that. You can't do that on this stage. It's just sort of who he is. And if you don't know him, you don't know that side of him. And so you won't have a real deep, intimate, experiential connection with him. And in the worst possible case, the worst possible case of that, not having a deep connection with him, is that at the very end of time, he looks at you and says, I never knew you. That's the worst case scenario. And all your act did was push him away. No reward. I never knew you. And actually, this is interesting. I don't know that it's you pushed him away as much as he left because he doesn't like the game playing. He just bailed. So your religion didn't so much push him as he just left on his own accord. So what did we miss? That's this reward thing. You have the hiddenness of God is the first thing about this. And then the second thing is this reward thing. What, what aren't we getting in the game of religion that we are getting if we have a deep, inner, private, hidden life with God? That ought to be the thing that's, that gets our, piques our interest right. Uh, this is another thing, by the way, we have to explore because he's going to use this uh, ten times, Matthew's going to use six times in, ahead of us. It's an important part of this. And it's multifaceted because it's never really said what it is. You just sort of pick up ideas about what it probably is. But the fact that there is, it's not specified, specified means it's not just an attaboy. You know, you don't just get a trophy at the end, some trinket that says, hey, good job. It's not that kind of game. Religion wants that. It's not the game God's playing. If you do this for me, God, I'll do this for you. That's not what God is doing. Now, I think this is God's goodness and favor that overflows toward people who have a a, a good relationship with them. It's kind of like any relationship. There are wonderful benefits that come from knowing somebody. And you go, I wish I knew that person. Because I better be really cool to know that person. And there would be all kinds of really cool things that come from knowing a person. This is how it is with God. All the wonders of knowing him personally and relating to him. And uh, Barclay, who is an older commentary on this text, says, if you banished all rewards and punishments from the idea of religion, that's an effect to say that injustice 
or unrighteous living has the last word. It cannot reasonably be reasonably be held that at the end, the good man and the end of the bad man are one and the same. There's got to be a difference between the guy who knows God personally and the guy who doesn't. The guy who acted on the stage and the guy who really knew him, there's got to be a difference. That's what reward is saying. Oh, there is. There have to have been benefits from a deeply robust, hidden life with God. And then uh, Grant Osborne says that there is a, a sort of a geometric progression in this text. The more earthly focused you are, the less heaven you get. Now, and potentially forever. The more earthly focused you are, the more disconnected you are from heaven, and the less heaven you get. And it's almost like, be very careful what you wish for. You want approval from humans instead of God? Be careful. Because it means you can miss out on a lot of things. Uh, we talk about reward. What time is it? Ah, I gotta hurry. So when we talk about reward, we can talk about the end where it literally could possibly be that you don't Get heaven at all. Remember, I never knew you. Depart from me. So whatever reward is, it's really broad. It could mean that you get no heaven. That's the real danger here. But along the way, any of us who are trying to be what God wants us to be, there's a, a million other little heavenly moments that we miss because we're, we don't have the hidden life. That reward is very broad. At its worst, you don't even get in. But in the, in the best of circumstances, you miss out on a lot of things that God provides. And at the end of the day, ultimately, when it comes to reward here, I think ultimately he is the reward. To have him is to have a... Countless peace and confidence, love, stability, ult ultimacy. You know what matters. You have meaning. You... All of those come from knowing him. And that's what C.S. Lewis meant in The Weight of Glory when he talked about reward. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, not, it, it's rewards that have the... It's the right kind of reward for the relationship. Remember what he talked about when we talked about this before, um, where he talks about mercenary living, where you live to get something. Like if you marry somebody for money, you're mercenary because money's not the reward of marriage. Love. Marriage is the reward of love. It's the natural connection. If you have love, you want to be together. It's sort of 
that kind of dynamic. But if you pursue anything other than the, the thing itself, the real reward of that is very is natural to it, is what he's trying to explain. Marriage is the, reprop, is the proper reward of love. Proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity. They are the consummation of the activity itself. They are the consummation of the activity itself. Just being with God comes all the wonders of having been with God that we miss out on. It's probably the best way to say it. And then at the, at the very end, he says, here's, the great, here's how you know the reward is alive and well in your life is if you're increasing, you have an increasing desire to be with him, then you know that that's really the reward. How would you assess your desire for him right now? Is it high? Is it low? Is it medium? Is it non-existent? This text is telling us there's at least one clear way to know. What's your hidden life look like? What does your secret life look like? If you don't have one, that's, that's a bad sign. If you can't seem to find any motivation to connect with God at a deep level, hidden in alone. That would be a problem. So in the couple, in the few weeks ahead of us, we have to discuss the idea of uh, approval because it's, it's perverse and it's potentially destructive. Your ego swells, but your soul shrivels. So the invitation today is just simply this because we have a lot to look at. The invitation today is simply this. Uh, do you even really know him at all? You say, I mean, I've said some things and I've done some things. I don't think I really know him. It's never really been personal for me. I don't feel like I've ever really been connected to him. I feel like I've just been a part of religious trappings for whatever reason, but I've never really known or wanted or felt connected to him at all then maybe today you've never given your life to Christ. That would be the thing to solve. You solve that now. And then for the rest of us, you just don't have a secret life at all. Your private life, your interactive life with God alone is, is pretty weak. You don't really know him that well. You don't know how he operates. You don't know how to experience him in your life. Even basic devotional acts are missing. You don't know the joy that comes from giving. You don't know the freedom that comes from depending on him and asking him for everything that you need, trusting him. You don't know the strength that comes 
from incorporating some kinds of like uh, spiritual undertakings or activities in your life to make you more focused on it. We're aware of his presence, his love, his directives, his care. And when you do that, you just play a lot less silly games. Spy your heads, would you? you're here today and you don't, <laughs> I mean, it's very possible I don't know him at all. Then This morning, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to do what a lot of other people in this room have done, and that is surrender your life to him right now. Say, you tell him, God, I want a personal relationship with you. I don't want a religious life. I don't want religion. Tell him. I want you. Ask him into your heart. Ask him into your life. Bible says if you, if you knock, if you seek, if you ask, he'll show up. The hidden God will show up. And for the rest of us, listen. There is no greater motivation to develop a private, hidden, secret life, which we'll describe what that looks like in the coming weeks, than to know that he's there waiting for you to get there. If that doesn't motivate you there, nothing else will. There ain't a sermon in the world. There ain't a book in the world or anything. Just knowing he's there should make you want to be there. Father, we have heard your word today, and I pray we take it to heart.